Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. You are listening to Solidarity Chats, a special section of the Contra podcast on disability, design justice, and the life world. These episodes, recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, focus on disability, eugenics, and mutual aid. We're hoping to capture some of the conversations that disabled people and our allies are having about issues such as healthcare infrastructure, medical triage, eugenics, and technology as it is unevenly distributed across the population. These episodes are also going to come out at a different rate than the regular Contra episodes, so please make sure to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Stitcher so that you don't miss any. I'm so thrilled to be here with Alice Wong of the Disability Visibility Project, who was also a guest on Contra in season one, and we are going to talk today about the coronavirus. So Alice, um, I'm, I'm sad that this, these are the circumstances under which we're coming back together to talk, but I wanted to make sure to highlight your perspective because I think you have a lot of really important things to say about what's happening right now. So um, what's your take on how this coronavirus pandemic is affecting disabled people in this moment? Well, uh, thank you for having me back on. I think it's really, you know, important for us to all kind of have these important conversations together right now. And I think, as you said, uh, I think there's uh, multiple things happening. Uh, that the pandemic really has, you know, for a lot of us, we've been ready and prepared for this in a lot of ways that's not disabled folks have not really really understood or prepared for so like living under great uncertainty and great uh, instability is not due and it never was due in terms of just uh, whether it was living under this administration or way before that so like other disabled folks sick folks, uh, immunocompromised folks, they've always had these kind of survival uh, wisdom and resources and know-how like since the beginning of time. So it's uh, in many ways, it's our time mm-hmm. in a very ironic way, but it's also just hopefully a really it's also a very scary time because as we've seen in these times of crisis or times of emergencies where all the bigotry comes out, right? Everybody's, we see so much racism and just, you know, ableism and ageism and just, you know, straight up xenophobia as well. So like this is also a very, I think, 
very crystallizing time for to we really see our our place within this larger society and our relationship to the state because really we are not a priority as a marginalized group and clearly our body minds are seen as disposable and just almost thought of as collateral damage under this guise of high risk or vulnerable populations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been just watching as, you know, we're confronted with a crisis that disabled people actually have a lot of experience and answers for, and yet disabled lives are being put in jeopardy in so many ways, including this idea that there are scarce resources that should be diverted from disabled people and chronically ill people to people who were previously non-disabled and now have the coronavirus. And I wonder what you think about those arguments about scarcity and resources. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I'm going to reference a piece by Sam Bagdastos, who's a professor at the University of Michigan, and he wrote a piece recently where he just wrote a few lines say that, you know, scarcity is a construct, you know, it's a result of societal decisions. And I would say that, just to add to that, you know, it's a result of political decisions. And, you know, clearly when you have marginalized communities that have never had the same political power and access, to be part of the decision-making process, this is how we end up in these situations. You know, I think a lot about who's at the table when they come to, like, all these healthcare systems creating these, you know, protocols and guidelines, you know, whether you're a, a public servant or a doctor or a bioethicist, you know, we're not really... Uh, I'll buy you anything, you know, we're not really we're really not represented. So again, this is a this really makes a very explicit the kind of power that we we don't have, but also on the flip side too, we have so much power as well, just in different ways, right? This often not valued and not seen. And I think uh, slowly people are seeing the power that we have in terms of just looking at the amazing amount of mutual aid that's happening on the ground by disabled people, for disabled people. That's been a really beautiful thing to see. Uh, Also, just a lot of people pushing back against these narratives whether it's online through Twitter or just, you know, podcasting, but just, you know, you know, people speaking out, people writing, people really sharing their stories, which I think is such an important thing to do because there is such an imbalance, there is such a disparity in what is, uh, what is seen and what is shared. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, disabled people have been doing things like mutual aid for so long. It's just part of what we do. Um, Leah Lakshmi, Piepsna, Samarasinha, in their book Care Work, actually says, you know, this is like, for some of us, we don't even have a name for this because it's just what we do all the time. And I've been thinking about that a lot, these ideas of um, disabled people helping each other thrive, checking in with each other, um, and how this is really part of disability culture. And it's really antithetical to the sort of individualist culture that characterizes non-disabled worlds. So suddenly um, we have this whole skill set that we've been practicing for so long in preparation Um for something like this that can then be shared with other people as well. Yeah, there's such a generosity and abundance. I think that's, you know, something that I've seen and experienced uh, as being part of the disability community. That's, you know, just makes me feel so warm and just, it really keeps me going knowing that people have my back, I have their back. but, you know, again, this is where, you know, people with often the least are often giving the most. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what really disturbs me, of course, is, you know, all these, you know, like, non-disabled, middle, upper-class folks just, you know, hoarding all the, like, t- toilet paper and just, like, you know, all the food and also just, uh, you know, again, uh, meditations, right? Like meditations that uh, such a disabled people need just to live. And yet, uh, you know, certain meditations are now, you know, in shortage. Uh, ventilators are in shortage. Uh, you know, I, uh, even like people with asthma, you know, inhalers are in shortage. And that's, you know, that is, incredibly harmful at this, you know, part of this individualistic capitalist, like, I'm going to get by while I can. And that ethos is just, you know, it's really shitty. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot about how in disability community, one of the ways that we care for each other is by really like checking in and listening to what we need in order to be able to be present. And so like, you know, for me as somebody who has a lot of like chemical sensitivities and chemical injuries and asthma, um, I'm pretty accustomed to being like, I can't be around you if you're wearing essential oils or fragrances. And also being able to trust my disabled comrades that, you know, they're going to take that seriously and create access together. Um, And what I'm really just like blown away by right now is that there's this global effort in some senses to decrease, mitigate risk for vulnerable people by staying home, which is really good. And yet there are still some people who do not do that um, because there hasn't been cultivated a sense of collective responsibility yet for them, or they think that they're the exception or that it's fine if they 
you know, go to the park and hang out with their friends in close proximity. Mm. And it's not putting anyone in danger. And um, I think a lot about the Access is Love project that you have been doing with Mia Mingus and Sandy Ho. And just the idea is that if we shift toward thinking about accessibility as an act of love and generosity and hospitality, then we have to decenter our individual and often like selfish desires, right? Yeah, and I think this is again, uh, if there's one small silver lining to, to come out of this pandemic, especially for non-disabled people, is this notion of interdependence, which is a principle within disability justice, is the fact that, you know, we are not individual islands or so, so silos. Yeah. And I really hope that, you know, as more, I mean, this is another thing that really bothers me, this pet peeve of mine, is that suddenly when younger people get sick, it matters. Right, younger, quote, quote, healthy people, suddenly they're the ones being hospitalized. Oh, like, oh, now we gotta take this seriously. And again, this is just another example of who is centered. Mm-hmm. Who's valued in our society? Again, this emphasis on young, healthy, not disabled people as the people that need to be protected first at the at the cost of older adults and disabled people. Like just because we are high risk, suddenly, you know, we are obligated to bear the brunt of it. I mean, uh, I think it was a lieutenant governor or someone. Uh, uh, in Texas, talking about like, oh, grandparents are willing to sacrifice for the next generation. And I'm just mm-hmm. like, uh, he just volunteered that kind of very eugenic you know, and ageist assumption that older people are just going to be more than willing to sacrifice their lives for their grandchildren. And I think that's also just incredibly dangerous, especially thinking about this road ahead and the consequences of these, you know, protocols and guidelines by health systems because, yeah, I mean, there's going to be very difficult decisions ahead of us, whether it's, you know, whether we like it or not, but really, what kind of values are going to be reflected in those documents because it practices. And I think that's another thing that hopefully people are really seriously taking some time to consider. Even though these are very urgent and there's probably not that much time for reflection. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it feels like it's really urgent right now to highlight the eugenic logics of those sorts of ideas about sacrifice. Um, and, you know, there, we have so many examples of older folks and disabled folks being characterized as unproductive members of society or the Nazi phrase was useless eaters. And so it was like, if you're not contributing, then you ought to die so that other people can live and um you know we know how that story turned out and its persistence in our world today 
Um, and so it seems especially important to agitate against it and disrupt it anytime it comes up. Yeah, and I think so much of this is also based on judgments of like our quality of life. You know, I think, uh, you know, some of the calculus or, you know, criteria is often based on like prognosis and like how many years do you live with treatment if you recover, you know, from one person to be another person. And, you know, obviously, if you're older or disabled, you may not live as long if you have all the access to treatment and interventions. And, you know, somehow because of those pure numbers of X person might live seven years versus 20 years, does that, I mean, does that really be that the person with fewer years shouldn't have the opportunity to live? I mean, I think sometimes the metrics is just really messed up where it's just based on like longevity, which really is an unfair measure because I think as disabled people and older people, I just, uh, sick people though, like it's really what you do with your time. It's really about the quality of the time that you have left. And I think uh, for myself personally, you know, I don't take anything for granted right now. I've never, I've, I've not taken anything for granted for quite a long time with my progressive disability as I've really have become weaker over time just because of the natural progression. I actually feel like, you know, ironically, like the most excited, the most like, I'm really at my peak now. Mm-hmm. Even though I really, if you look just purely based on paper, I'm at like the most like decline in terms of just, you know, functioning and all those like, you know, biomedical kind of measures. But like, you know, I feel the most alive right now. And I think, you know, that's something that never is going to appear, you know, on a questionnaire or on a protocol. You know, we lose so much of the uh, the qualitative aspects of what it means to be alive and what it means to, like, to want to be alive. I think that's, you know, that's something that's missing. And I think uh, that's why storytelling is so important to me right now. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It seems like um, all of the stories that you capture through your work with the Disability Visibility Project help to shape exactly the argument that you were just making um, about the importance of disabled people determining our own value of life. Um, So in the few minutes that we have left, I wonder if you have any predictions or speculations for the future or admonitions or um, words of warning. Well, I do think in terms of words of warning, uh, you know, I wrote a piece a week ago and I didn't really, you know, want to write it. But again, like you and I, I think understand sometimes we feel compelled because of the the world around us and the circumstances around us. But, uh, you know, I did write how I think at this time and way before this time, you know, disabled people are the our modern day oracles. 
you know, read behind the truth and try to tell our truth forever and whether or not people have been listening to us or not. And if that's the one message I would say is that, you know, we have been telling our, you know, giving real talk about the world. And I feel like this is something that's so needed right now. And my hope is that as a lot of non-disabled folks get a, get a small inkling of everything they take it for granted and just the best privilege they've had and their loss of temporary, temporary loss of privilege at this point or, you know, this kind of temporary inconvenience so that they realize the kind of truth and the power of our truth. So maybe that's that's what I'll end with is the idea that we are the real oracles and you know, hopefully people will will pay attention. Yeah, definitely. And um, I'll just highlight an amazing piece that you wrote for the journal Catalyst last year as well, in which you speculated on a future in which disabled people survived the apocalypse and had wisdom to offer um, for looking back. Um, So thank you so much, Alice. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful for you and everything that you do. And um, I'll definitely be in touch. Well, thanks for having me on, Amy, and I think uh, in these times, you know, it's just like all we have is each other, so thank you. Yeah, grateful to be in community with you. Thank you. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra Podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.